It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. She thought of us parents. She did. I mean, yeah, we were her parents, but she thought we was her friends as, as well, close friends. And she didn't mind telling any of her friends or whoever. And her friends loved to hang out with us too. You know, we uh, we just treated them just like one of ours. And, uh, it's the, it's the good things. I mean, when you think about her, and that hurt is there, then you put a good memory in there, and that good memory drowns out the bad for a while, a little while. You have to, I mean, we have to, I have to think more of the good times. I know a lot of times she'd come back there, Lord mercy, she'd love to still sleep with us. She'd come back there and me and her snuggle up, you know, she snuggled to my back or I'd snuggle to hers. And I say, you see there, me and you fit like a hand in a glove. I mean, you just have to think about some of the good. We have to think about the good, because if you didn't, if we didn't, we wouldn't have made it 30 years. Her and Mountain and Gail had a very, very unique relationship. It was almost like an open book. She did have the teenage girl thing, and by this time, I have already gotten married and had a baby. She was still in high school. She was, well, she was in the 12th grade. She went into the delivery room with me, and, you know, and she agreed that she would be Tiffany's godmother. And that was a special thing because I wanted Tiffany to have a relationship, you know, with somebody like Rhonda and I had. Rhonda would come to me, you know, and talk to me, and we would, you know, discuss these things that she, that she couldn't discuss with her mother, uh, you know, and nor that any other teenage daughter would would discuss with her mama. But uh, we had a we had a special special relationship, you know. It was a sister relationship, not a cousin relationship. Of I called on her and I talked to her about things and. It was just me and her. That's all we had was just me and her, you know, in the family. After Rhonda's death, Milton and Gail needed to find some outlet for the love they felt for their daughter, a love that could no longer be reciprocated. So they became closer to Connie and her young daughter. And as time passed, Connie's granddaughter, Rayleigh. Well, for the first few years, it was real rough. Connie, which is our, which is our niece, uh, Rhonda was in the delivery room with her, and the, Tiffany was born. And like I say, we showed a lot of our love toward Tiffany and uh, Connie, you know, uh, because I I reckon we had that little bond there from Rhonda with with Tiffany, and uh, we we never took an ounce of love away from Rhonda. Our love is there, but we just sort of shifted it you know, towards Connie and Tiffany, and now Rayleigh, we're just sort of spreading it. The way Rhonda was, 
her personality, her love, her caring, you know, she would spread. That would be what she would wanted us to do, to just give this love to somebody else, mom and daddy, yeah, you know. Because we're not giving the love we have for her away. There's more love there. We're just focused on them three girls right now. They, they're our hearts. From Imperative Entertainment, this is Fox Hunter. I've been on this quest to find out everything I can about Rhonda Coleman for months now in the hopes of uncovering some clue as to who killed her and why. I've talked to a lot of people and I've yet to hear one truly negative thing about Rhonda as a person. To say the least, she was a sweet girl. She was feisty, yet she was kind. She loved her family, cared for her friends, stuck up for what she believed in, and had enough humility to put her ego aside and try to work things out when she and another person had issues with one another. But somewhere along the way, when investigating a case like this, I guess I've found that it's easy to get so caught up in the pursuit of the truth behind a terrible event that you forget to step back and remember that this was a real person, the person who was loved and is missed. This past May marks 31 years since Rhonda was taken from her family, her friends, and her future. I keep a picture of her on the wall above my computer. It helps me remember why I'm doing this, to find the truth, to bring closure to a family that desperately needs it. And this is where I and the Coleman family need your help. Since Rhonda's murder, there have been people sporadically throughout the years who have come forward with bits and pieces of information that they've never before shared. Things they assumed law enforcement already knew. Things they felt were probably not very important to the case for whatever reason. Things they've kept silent out of fear of some kind of retaliation. The Coleman family and law enforcement wholeheartedly believes that there are people out there right now who hold the key to solving this case. I believe that too. What does it take for these people, whoever they are, to finally come forward and provide the missing piece of the puzzle that could once and for all end the misery that is not knowing the truth? Please come forward. Just please come tell what you know. Please. I would say please and I would thank you dearly, but I would also say think of it this way. What if it was your child? I know if it was your child and, and I was in that situation, I would have done come forward if I knowed something. Like I said, I don't care who, whose cages I rattle. And I've said it before, I don't care if it's somebody family, I don't care if it's somebody we've known in the past. Does not matter, we don't care, we just... They just want the truth. They want this behind them. And if you or someone you know has any information on Rhonda's case, no matter how small or insignificant you may think it is, please, now is the time to come forward, to tell your truth, to help finally solve this case. Almost immediately following Rhonda's murder, 
a reward fund was collected from local businesses and residents of the area in and around Hazelhurst for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Rhonda's killer or killers. It started small and would eventually grow to over $35,000. As years passed and no arrests were made, that fund was turned into a scholarship in Rhonda's name. Now, with new interest being generated in Rhonda's story and people once again talking about the case, I ask you, the listener, to consider donating to a new reward fund that has been created by the Coleman family. They have personally offered up the first $25,000. We had a $20,000 and then we upped it to $25,000 and there's just $25,000 standing now. I would like to see it get higher. You know, and I'd like to see it pledged, you know, but uh, I, I think I think somebody knows something. It's just, they just kept their mouth shut all this time, and it might break it loose. If this gets out, you know, and, and people donate, and we can get it on up there, the higher the better. We're not rich, but if it takes it, we'll do what we have to do. But we would appreciate anyone that could give to this reward and let's get it up there, and let's just... People are in bad shape right now financially, and maybe somebody can talk. When your story comes out, maybe it would trigger someone's mind. There's just so many maybes, but with your help and the people that you're talking to and the people that may, may can donate, we can get this behind us. I'm not saying just behind Milton and I, I'm talking about my side of the family, his side of the family, Rhonda's family, the, and, and the community. The, the, this town, Hazelhurst and Jeff Davis County, has been so supportive. I mean, the people in this community is... This community has always come together for yes, emergencies. I believe, I've got faith, and I believe, and I believe, strong in my heart, I believe this too is coming to pass, and I believe it, and I believe that it's going to happen because there's too many people praying, too many people caring, too many people. I am just looking for the day, the day that Rondos was found. This yard was full of people, caring, loving people that was wanting to help. I want to see them people back out here in this yard celebrating. We hope the reward fund will spur new interest in the case and allow those that know something to share even the smallest of details that might provide a new lead. And you can even do so anonymously if you wish. Any amount you donate to this cause helps. Even $1 goes a long way. Your contribution, along with those of others, could help to entice someone with valuable information to come forward. If once again, no arrests are made and the reward fund stagnates, it will be donated in full to charitable organizations. Per the Coleman's wishes, 50% to the St. Jude Children's Hospital and 50% to crime victim advocacy groups in South Georgia, which helps family members of victims of violent crimes with counseling services, legal advice, burial expenses, and more. Keep listening at the end of this episode for details on how you can donate to the Rhonda Coleman Reward Fund or visit foxhunterpodcast.com for more information. It's 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. For now, I have to keep moving forward with my investigation and continue trying to find people that will talk to me. And in doing that, I have to ask tough questions. I have to question if there could be an unknown side to Rhonda, a private life that most people weren't aware of, something that could have potentially put her in harm's way. And that's a tricky road to navigate, especially after hearing some things that Don Walsh came to question during the investigation he stumbled into. And down the rabbit hole, we go. And I, I'm going to throw this out there. And, you know, this can go so many different directions. I, I don't, hope I ain't, you don't think I'm crazy when, when you hang up. The Carter girls might have looked back at the dates, but I think she was killed a few months before Rhonda. Now, although there are new leads in this case, several people have told me off the record that there are similarities to Rhonda's murder and the death of a young girl about a year ago named Jeanette Carter. Now, in Ms. Carter's case, her body was found in a field like Rhonda Sue's. Her car engine had been left running, running like Rhonda Sue's. And apparently, Ms. Carter had not been sexually molested. And from what we understand, that is the case with Rhonda Sue. Other than that, though, we know nothing in terms of a suspect in this case. Kelly and John. Jeanette Carter was murdered in Hazelhurst in November of 1989, just months before Rhonda's death. The similarities between her death and Rhonda's are astonishing. Both women drove identical white 1989 Chevy Cavaliers, purchased from the same man at the same dealership. That salesman was looked into, but nothing tied him to either murder. Both vehicles were found abandoned on the same dirt road, just about a mile or so apart from each other. Both vehicles had a door that was left open, and both women were found dead in wooded areas, though in Jeanette's case, she had been beaten and was found much closer to her vehicle than Rhonda had been. Police also found the murder weapon, a steel pipe, nearby. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Jeanette was about six months earlier, I think. Yeah, you're right. If you look at some old maps, or you don't know, you can Google uh, Hazelhurst up. But the road that Rhonda was parked on, the dirt road, back in 1990, that road led all the way to the other side, to the next highway over there, which is where Jeanette was killed at. Basically on the same road, but on the other end of it. I've talked with some people that knew Jeanette real good, and they said Jeanette always hung out on that road, and that's where she smoked her pot at. That was the known place smoked their pot. They had a couple alleys they backed up in and died that I smoked a little pot over that way. 
something came across me when we reading all this. I just wondered had Rhonda maybe rode up on Jeanette's situation and maybe she knew what they done to Jeanette and it was that I don't know, that's something that they were trying to keep hush hush. I'm not sure. That's just something I've been wondering, you know. I had actually wondered about this too, because I was trying to find any reason that someone might want to kill this likable, fun-loving young girl. And I couldn't help but think of all the drug trafficking that was taking place in the area at the time. Is it possible that Rhonda saw or heard something that she wasn't supposed to see or hear? Again, I feel like I have to at least explore every possible scenario here. If nothing else, just to cross those theories off the list. But if Jeanette Carter was into drugs, as I'd heard, and the road where Rhonda was abducted was a known area that people bought, sold, or used drugs, I'd heard that from Steve Land as well, and it's the same area Jeanette Carter was killed, it's worth at least exploring the similarities between the two cases. And the similarities between the two murders are uncanny. Well, see, on the Jeanette Carter thing, they, they, they put a hush-hush on that because they supposedly convicted someone. But it, I've got the report, and it's a, I'll be honest with you, it's a piss-poor report. They never questioned nobody, basically, except this, or they never looked at no one except this one man. This one man is all they looked at. And I don't see, in fact, they finally threw it out of court because uh, the DA finally told them we don't have no evidence. We can't carry this to court. He never served time for it. One of his old friends that I've spoke with, uh, and he was a good friend with Jeanette also. He never believed Joy done it, me talking with him. And uh, he tells me about when Joy heard about it, you know, he, he come to this man's house first thing that the next morning and, and just squalling like a baby and all. Joey Dickey was arrested as a suspect in the murder of Jeanette Carter, but the case was dead docketed and later thrown out due to lack of evidence. Local law enforcement still overwhelmingly believes it was Dickey who committed the murder. But some of the townspeople aren't convinced, like Don Walsh for one. On, on Jeanette's case, I don't believe I don't believe the Joey Dickey feller was the responsible party at all. Dickey died in 2008, and the Carter case was never officially closed. So who did kill Jeanette Carter? And could it be the same person or people? that killed Rhonda. But for the sake of argument, what's the angle here? How could this relate to Rhonda? There's a lot of marijuana going on at that time uh, around here. True, we've heard plenty about the drug trafficking in the area, and not just marijuana. But again, most of the people I've talked to said Rhonda wasn't into that. I never saw her drink. I never saw her smoke. Um, That's not to say she did or didn't. I, I never witnessed it. No. Now, the alcohol, that, that's a little bit different, but not the drugs. No. I don't believe that. Drugs, I don't see that. She's never, I mean, never, ever once, even with marijuana, said, hey, let's go try that. So if she did it, it was something she was doing completely behind many people's backs. They're going to tell you the sweet side of everything. And Don could be right about that. But since I've found no credible source that said Rhonda was involved in drugs in any way or had proof of that, I have to assume she didn't use them, and therefore was likely not ever in a situation such as a drug deal gone wrong. But after hearing from nearly everyone I spoke to who knew Rhonda well, including those who were at Mickey Beecher's party, that Rhonda did not drink that night, 
I found out one very important piece of information. Did she have, she had no drugs in her system? No, it's in here somewhere and I'll, I'll find it for you. But uh, I read last night it was nothing except alcohol 0.08. Steve Land showed me the copy of the original toxicology report, one of the few files he saved when we met up. Rhonda's blood alcohol content was 0.08 in the report. In the state of Georgia, the legal blood alcohol limit is 0.08, which means that Rhonda was legally drunk when she died. I researched how many drinks it would take a person of Rhonda's size, about 5'5 and 115 pounds, to reach 0.08, and it would be about two drinks in a one-hour period. A drink would be considered one 12-ounce beer, one glass of wine, or one shot of whiskey. So if it's true that Rhonda wasn't drinking at the party, when did she down at least two drinks? She disappeared less than an hour after she left the party. Could she have been forced to drink by her killer in an effort to calm her down? Or was there another reason? Or are people hiding the truth from me in an effort to protect the memory or reputation of Rhonda? It makes me wonder if the other information I've heard regarding Rhonda not using drugs is accurate. But regarding Don Walsh's investigation, he ran into the same problem I have. The GBI has all of the records under lock and key pertaining to the case and the investigation. We have a pretty clear idea of what the scene entailed where Rhonda's car was found, but so far, we don't know much about where her body was recovered. Uh, I've not seen no reports of the actual scene where she was abducted. So I did start researching the scene where she was found in Montgomery County. And there again, I'm hearing uh, individual report as early as maybe being found as early as 7 a.m. And maybe the paper is not reporting it to like 2 p.m. I'm hearing that a, a hunter may have found her. And I don't understand it was on a piece of property that had been clear cut. And if you go by the paper, it was at 2 p.m. when she was found. Not hunting season, but they're saying this hunter found her. This is what was reported in the newspapers, that Rhonda's body was found by a hunter around 2 p.m. on Sunday, May 20th. Now, I might not have thought much of this because I'm not a hunter, but I looked into the different hunting seasons, and unless someone was doing it illegally, which is absolutely a possibility, the only animal in season for hunting around the time of Rhonda's death would have maybe been turkey, and it would have been at the tail end of the season. If you were fox hunting, you would most likely do that at night. And from what I can find on the Georgia Hunting Seasons and Regulations website, fox season is from early December to late February. So unless the regulations have changed since 1990, our fox hunters were likely doing it illegally. But I couldn't find records going back that far. Either way, there are no reports of this man having a hunting rifle of any kind that I've been able to find. But as Don pointed out, the land was recently clear-cut. It's not the best place to hunt anyway. And it was actually pretty hot that day. I think made a mistake in the mid-80s, you know. So that there just, it's never fit to me. I've actually um, also heard there was an off-duty police officer that had found her. Several years ago, he tracked down one of the men who found Rhonda's body, a man named Talmadge Prickett. Prickett's name was only mentioned in one or two reports from Montgomery County newspapers. I couldn't find it in one single paper from Jeff Davis County. 
And one of the newspapers in Montgomery County did report him uh, as being the officer who found her. But now he tells me he found her, I'm wanting to say 10 a.m. or shortly before. He was out of his out of his county. He was actually from Alamo. This, this crime scene was in Montgomery. Alamo's in Wheeler. Part of what's in question here is why was this police officer from Wheeler County sitting in a field in Montgomery County? He tells me he was out there uh, somewhere where he didn't belong having an affair and someone knocks on his window and says, hey, we, we've got a, a body over here. Supposedly they went to the nearest house, made a phone call, reported the, the scene. This does get a little foggy. It's just the way the events were reported at the time. And remember, I told you there were a lot of people involved in this case in one way or another. But what Don is saying in a nutshell is that there are two versions of what happened. Either a man found Rhonda while supposedly hunting on May 20th, and while walking out of the area to find a phone to call the police, he happened upon a police car. Inside the car was an off-duty policeman named Talmadge Prickett, who, according to Don's conversation with him years later, was having an affair with a woman who was not his wife, and the two men went to the nearest neighboring house to call it in. Another version is that Talmadge Prickett found Rhonda himself and went to the nearest house to have them call it in so he wouldn't have to explain why he was in Montgomery County. It's frustrating that something as important as who found Rhonda's body and how it happened has been misreported or gotten convoluted over the years. Don says this information comes directly from Mr. Prickett, who he tracked down a few years ago. He shared with me a recording of this conversation, but I'll spare you the terrible audio quality. Much of it is muffled or too quiet to understand clearly, though you can hear Mr. Prickett identify himself and also say coyly he was in a place he shouldn't have been. He also stated that his wife wasn't happy. I wanted to speak with this man directly, but sadly, it seems he passed away this past December. Just one more person who's died with valuable information on this case. But he says he stayed there all day and he worked the gate, you know, keeping onlookers from actually entering. But there again, he was never, from what I understand, he was never questioned. And I understand maybe he ain't even in the report whatsoever, period. Best I can understand, he's been under the radar ever since that day. And um, he even explains to me that even the newspapers was reporting wrong times, they was reporting incorrect details of the case. It's been very difficult to find out specific details of exactly how and when Rhonda's body was found, who it was that found her, and any other specific details surrounding the crime scene. I tracked down the first GBI agent assigned to the investigation, a man named Richard Dees, and another GBI agent that worked the case named Martin Moses. I reached out to them to see if they could provide any further insight into this. Well... Actually, the first call we got was from a citizen in the adjoining county. It was in Montgomery County where her body was found. And they had been rambling in the woods and stumbled across her body. And that was the first call we got was that a body had been found. At that time, we didn't know who it was. Martin Moses walks me through the first few days of the investigation from the GBI's perspective from the time the call was received by the person who found Rhonda's body. They called the sheriff's office, and, you know, that the, G, the GBI uh, works at the request of the local authorities. 
So the local authorities called us in when it when they determined that there was a body and a probable homicide involved. The next thing was was trying to identify who it was. I mean, we knew, you know, you have a missing person, and you know, you have a a dead person that meets that description. But you know, until you do forensics and that type of stuff, you you can't say for one hundred percent certain who you have. And so that was the that was the next step was to get some dental records, you know, and sure enough, it turned out to be her. Of course, the word got out as soon as we identified who it was, you know, in a small community, the word got out who it was and all of that. And then a lot of her friends came forward with information about where she had been and who she had been with. And, the, and then you just start talking to those people and see if anybody in that bunch had anything against her. And that was a long, drawn-out process. We even uh, took that angle of, you know, checking her background to see if there was anything shady in her background, and absolutely nothing turned up. I mean, nobody nobody ever saw her drunk at a party or anything like that, you know. It was, it was, it was nothing. Martin describes what he remembers of the crime scene for me. It was a wooded area. It was a, a pine tree forest way back off of a uh, what we call in the south a logging road you know just a trail through the woods and uh, it was off to the side it was laying uh, laying there she had not been assaulted uh, and it was in a terrible state of decomposition I've made the statement many times that was the the fastest decomposing human body I, I, I ever saw in my career. I don't know whether it was the extreme heat or or I, I don't know I, I, I didn't I didn't have an answer for that. I also wanted to know if there was any truth to the story I'd heard from Don Walsh about the off-duty cop having an affair as I'm trying to separate fact from fiction here. And Richard Dees provides some insight. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> so he was having an affair with a woman. That story is true. Yeah, yeah. He found it, and then he went and told this guy, so he'd be the one to find her. <laughs> so according to Richard, the story Don shared is true. But from his account... Prickett found Rhonda and then went to the first house he came upon, which happened to be an overseer of the property. He had that man call into the police station, then work the rest of the day keeping onlookers away from the crime scene. Yeah, there was a guy that lived, you might say, right up the road from there that uh, he had something to do with that property. He was kind of an overseer, I think. So he went and got him and he reported that he was just riding around looking at the property, just seeing some people over there on four-wheelers. That's how he come across that. This story differs from what Prickett told Don Walsh, though. And it differs still from the newspaper reports stating that a hunter had found Rhonda. So while I had Richard on the phone, I picked his brain on some of the other things I'd heard so far, in hopes that he might be able to shed some light on whether some of these leads were true or not. I asked him if there were any suspects that stood out to him in particular during the early days of the investigation. And I immediately hear a familiar name. John. Again, John's name comes up. Uh, have you heard about the truck going by the fox hunters? Okay. The truck they described was 
a truck that John was driving at the time. I didn't know John, but then when I got, we got the interview and, you know, different people around, what they told me about him, it just seemed very plausible. And the, the only one that could vouch for him was his mother, and we just, she was first, really didn't know, and then she come back and said, yeah, he was home, and she would, she would have vouched for him anyway. This is the same thing I heard previously from Steve Land and Tish Kelly, that John's only alibi was his mother stating that he was home all night. And Steve, Tish, and Richard Dees all told me that she would do anything to protect her children, even lie for them. He also has strong opinions on John's alleged treatment of women. Right, right. And then what we found out about his treatment of other women, very, very rough slapping on one thing. We just, we just, he was just the one that was very plausible. And uh, where her body was found, there was tire tracks there, and they matched his truck, but there wasn't anything outstanding about him to say, yes, this was the tire. Because the truck was very, was was new, and the, and the tracks was new. But there wasn't anything, like I said, if a tire track has age on it, it's going to develop some characteristics. But there wasn't anything about this one. Makes, to me, it makes it more plausible. The truck has become a major piece of this story. It was witnessed by the fox hunters. There were tire tracks at the abduction site and crime scene that matched what were on the vehicle. Though it was new, and it's possible that the tires could have matched those of any new, similar vehicle. But once they started investigating John and the truck a bit deeper, they found more. You know, he, you know the truck he had, he had bought it in another man's name. A guy he worked with, he used his social security number and ID to buy it. So that came out at the time. John had actually forged a co-worker's signature and used that person's social security number and ID to buy the truck not long before Rhonda's death. Sounds similar to the check forgery accusation I'd heard from Emily Beecher. The dealership decided not to press charges, according to Richard, likely because they just didn't want to get mixed up in all this. I asked Richard if it was true that the truck had been searched for forensic evidence, as I'd heard from Milton. Yeah, yeah, we had our crime scene tech to go over it. And there was nothing that was found, you know, like hair or prints or anything like that. It would just come up with nothing. If Rhonda had been in the truck just days earlier, is it unusual that they didn't find any kind of forensic evidence? Hair, clothing fibers, anything? No, no, that's not unusual. So even though no physical evidence was found in the truck, it's still possible that this was the truck Rhonda got into that night. Richard shares with me a bit more as we talk, first about the location where Rhonda's body was discovered. Well, it was not burned up because people don't realize how much it takes actually to completely burn a body. But now she was burned all over and and burned pretty heavy. And uh, I was thinking also that they found on the side of her head where she might have been hit Seems like in the back of my back of my mind that they thought she was strangled and that bone was that bone in the neck, hyaluronic bone injured her. I want to say that they it was 
really don't know for sure. The hyoid sits in the neck between the lower jaw and the larynx and is suspended in place by muscles and ligaments. Hyoid bone fractures are characteristically associated with strangulation, found in approximately one-third of all homicides by strangulation. So if in fact it was damaged, it would almost certainly lead to the fact that Rhonda was strangled. No cause of death was ever publicly released, and Milton told me that on Rhonda's death certificate, the cause of death is listed as unknown, but that at one point, a GBI agent had told him off the record that he was 99% sure the cause of death was strangulation. But even the first GBI agent to work Rhonda's case says he can't be certain of her cause of death. He does also point out that she may have had bruising on one side of her head, and I've heard that before too. Is it possible that Rhonda had been struck in the head before her death? Is it possible that she did not in fact willingly get into the truck that night? Richard presents me with a theory of his. Well, knowing what I found out about John, he was a big ladies' man. And we think, I think that he had asked her out before and she wouldn't, you know. But anyway, on the way home, because John probably saw her, her, her vehicle anyway, going out that road, he come up behind her and flashed his lights. She thought it was one of her friends and pulled over and then got out of her car and walked back there. And he probably propositioned her or again and she had a temper on him. And she probably, you know, cussed him out or whatever and it hurt his, and he hit her and knocked her out. And then panicked from that point on. And then going by the fox hunters, trying to shut her up from screaming. I think that's when it happened, she got choked to death. This theory mostly falls in line with what Steve Land told me he feels happened, that Rhonda started screaming for help as they drove by the fox hunters, and the killer tried to quiet her, accidentally strangling or suffocating her. But one of the most perplexing things about the discovery of Rhonda's body is this. She was found in Montgomery County, yet the Jeff Davis County sheriffs took over the crime scene just as they had done at the scene where her car was found, which was not their jurisdiction in either location. That just doesn't make sense. This, in Steve Land's mind, is where Sheriff Mark Hall comes into play again. You presume the investigation is going to be where the body's found. But he goes to Montgomery County and tells that sheriff, this is my case. Now, I was told by that sheriff at the time because he was not pleased with it. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't challenge Mark. And... Why the GBI didn't get more involved in that issue, I'll never know, other than Mark's intimidation of them. But the case should have been worked out in Montgomery County. Who's to say the homicide did not occur in that county? The abduction occurred in Jeff Davis, but the body's found over here. So we're, what, what made you think the homicide occurred in Jeff Davis? What I can't figure out yet is why would Sheriff Hall be so protective of the crime scenes? I've still been unsuccessful in reaching out to some of the officers who worked closely with him to get their take on it, but I'll keep trying. If you are one of those officers, I'd like to hear from you about what you saw, what you know, and anything else related to the crime scene or the case that you can remember. By now, Don Walsh and I had been communicating regularly through text messages, emails, and phone calls, swapping names and comparing notes. My investigation seems to have renewed his interest in the case. And I couldn't help but wonder why had Don become so consumed by investigating Rhonda's murder over the years, 
And why is it so important to him that this 31-year-old murder case be solved? I asked him that very question the next time we sat together, and his answer brought it all home again. Well, I have a daughter. She's 18 today. And I'm sure there's a lot of other parents in the county. When their young daughters get this age, they try to sit them down and explain to them what happened to Rhonda Sue. It's scary. We try to make them aware of their surroundings, who's around, what time it is, where they're at. We even make them aware if, if they get pulled over, what to do. Almost everybody in the county, one way or the other, has heard of it, knows something of it, concerned about it. I say it'd be a relief to the whole county. This hit me hard. Don is such a mild-mannered Southern man, polite and friendly, though also tough and straightforward. But just the very thought of something happening to his daughter, like what happened to Rhonda, immediately overwhelms him and brings him to tears. Because while he's many things, at the end of the day, he's a father. And that's when things started to make more sense to me. Why this wasn't just the family and friends of Rhonda who so deeply felt the loss of her, because it could have been any one of their children. In that respect, they were the lucky ones. Six months into my investigation, I'm now left with more questions than when I started. I've felt frustrated, defeated. I felt like I'm getting nowhere. I felt like I'm letting down Milton and Gale. And not long after I started investigating this case, my wife and I found out we're going to have our first child later this year. And Rhonda's story suddenly means more to me now. Because I think, what if I have a daughter? A little girl of my own. What if this happened to her? What would I do? I can only imagine that I'd be doing the same thing that Milton and Gail Coleman are, fighting for answers, no matter how long it takes. I'd unearth every stone. I'd pursue every person who I'm told is a suspect. Even if it's one of the very people sworn to protect me. And solve my child's murder. So I tracked down the two suspects, John and Greg, and have been calling and calling, but no reply. Why aren't they answering? Why aren't they talking? What do they have to hide? Why won't even the sheriff of Jeff Davis County take my calls? You're a public servant, and I'm the public. Does it have anything to do with the fact that another name has popped up? Someone else that may be connected to the case? I met not one, but two potential eyewitnesses to the events surrounding the murder of Rhonda Coleman. And though these are two separate eyewitness accounts, they have nearly identical stories to share with me. And both accounts have one name in common, that of a former deputy sheriff. On the next installment of Fox Hunter. And I look off to the right, there's that little white car there. And I slipped my side up, 
was a Jeff Davis County Sheriff's car. She was in love with Marky. See, I think she was pregnant. And she was fixing to tell his wife. She was going to tell his wife about the affairs, what she was going to do, and they killed her. He even took a polygraph test and failed it. They said he passed it. Then other, somebody else has looked at it and said, no, he didn't pass it. He was deceptive. Marky knows he done it, and his daddy helped cover it up. I don't know why they don't arrest him and send him to prison. Rhonda Sue Coleman's murder case is still open. Any information that you or someone you know might have about the abduction or murder of Rhonda Coleman could be critical to solving this case. You can call our anonymous tip line at 470-440-1150, email us at foxhunterpodcast at gmail.com, or reach out directly to the GBI at 1-800-597-TIPS. All of this information, as well as how to donate to the Rhonda Coleman Reward Fund, is available at foxhunterpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to the first six episodes of Fox Hunter. As I mentioned, this investigation is now happening live in real time. So keep an eye out for new episodes in the coming weeks. There's a lot more information coming, and you're going to want to hear what I'm uncovering. Fox Hunter is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Key cover art provided by Joe Freeman Jr. Keychalis 9032-2015.JoeFreemanJr.com Fox Hunter is a 10-episode series available every Tuesday morning. Follow us on social media at Fox Hunter Podcast. If you like the show, leave us a review and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market. Rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.